So I'll read some. I thought I'd read some from all of the, the two collections, ma- mainly yarn, but I thought I'd re- start with um, a new one. It's always good to try out a new one in the air to see if they work in the air. Um, so these are poems I've been. I've written, I'm writing this whole book of poems on Cezanne. Um, when I say that, people think I say Suzanne. Uh, is it Suzanne who? No, 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 no. Never mind. Anyway, um, so I've been writing these poems, and um, so one of the, one of the themes of the collection, which won't come out until you know for donkeys' years, will come out next autumn. Um, Rilke went to the, the German poet Rilke went to um, very important exhibition of Cezanne, which was just the year after Cezanne died in 1907. There were 56 paintings on show in this in this exhibition, the most Cezannes that anyone has ever seen at the same time. Picasso went, Matisse went, Bonnard went, Monet went. The whole you know the whole next generation was there. Um, Rilke went, and for him it was like this religious experience of of seeing Cezanne. And he wrote a series of letters to his wife about it, um, Clara. Um, and the letters are still the best thing ever written on Cezanne. Uh, I mean, I recently interviewed Cezanne's most recent uh, <coughs> biographer, Alex Sanchez, and he said, oh yeah, they're still the best thing ever written. So the collection is rather haunted by these letters. Cezanne, um, Rilke always meant to write poems on Cezanne himself, but he, he, he never really got round, he never got round to it and didn't happen. Um, so this poem, I thought I'd just read one from it. Um, it has a rather cumbersome and long title, which is Rilke writes to his wife from the Salon de Autome. <laughs> anyway, there you go. It's a terribly boring title, but that is, that's, that's the pretext. So what happened was I went to this, there's been a recent portrait show of Cezanne that went to Paris and went to London. And I went to see it in Paris because I went and had this sort of pilgrimage for, for, at last to go and see the Cezannes and to go and see the, the studio in Aix-en-Provence. And... Um, I was there with my good friend Jan of Archer and we were looking at this particular painting and we had this experience looking at this painting and talking about it as we often do. And I thought, I can't have Jan of Archer in a poem. You know, I was trying to think, what would rhyme with Jan of Archer? <laughs> we came up with Geoffrey Archer. Was <laughs> <laughs> it kind <of> difficult? <laughs> Geoffrey Archer, Jan of Archer, quite nice. <laughs> I'm not, not, not that kind of poet. Um, so I thought, so what I thought I'd do is write the conversation we had, but put it back. And so I, I, I put it back as if it's a conversation between uh, Rilke, the poet Rilke, and um, Count Kessler, Count Harry Kessler, who is a, an art critic and, a, uh, and was there at that exhibition as well. But it's a lovely, it's amazing what happens if you take up another voice. Um, you can say things if you use another voice that you just can't say in your own voice in your own time. Yeah? Um, so it's it's written in rhyme, it's written in couplets, rhyming couplets, but you might not hear it very much because the rhymes are quite quiet, but um, and it looks like that on the page. It's very important what they look like on the page. So already you think, hmm, you probably think, won't well, read that one. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to read you that one. Oh yeah, that looks right. <laughs> People pick up her to go, short one, yeah, I'll read that one. <laughs> Once it goes over the page, I'm afraid that too many of mine go over the page. Um, so it's a letter. I mean, it's actually written in ten-line stanzas, which so it's slightly an ode. A lot of the poems in this collection are odes, but you wouldn't necessarily know. So. See what you think, and I might say a bit more about it afterwards. 
So it's called Rilke writes to his wife from the Salon de Atom, and the address is 29 Rue Cassette, 13th of October, 1907. How awkward she seemed, the picture cut in half, the lighter and the darker side choreographed by her cloudy blouse and strangely missing hands. Count Kessler turned to me and said, Suzanne pursues the line of beauty here, a line that flowers, literally flowers, in the design of the buttoned bodice meeting at the throat, in petal-like collars, revealing an almost stamen-like neck, columnar, to emphasise the tilt of her wounded head and mismatched eyes. He said he must have loved her just this much, unsuited though they were. Look how rich he makes her in her bourgeois cotton blue and counterpointed face. No Biavanu greets us, perhaps. There's something almost mordant, almost sad about her countenance, no doubt. But is a feeling hers or his or all of ours? And have you noticed this? He reached to touch my arm. The wallpaper, its clumsy pattern fills the right-hand corner. Now, what does that remind you of? Tears? Heavy falling tears? And what appears to be the bracket of a shelf, so insistent it breaks the picture's logic, magnificent in its wrongness, a kind of vice that grips her anxious, pleasing mind and holds it clipped in stillness, voiceless in agitation. It captures, doesn't it, our mortal hankering and fear, our common lot. My darling, he put it better, so much better than I can, writing you this letter. And while we looked, she seemed deserted, this wife and mother, imprisoned in her afterlife of paint, not knowing herself, not known, unsure why she's given to suffer, or why we all are. Well, the feeling passed, and soon Count Kessler went to speak to Myers Graf. It's raining extravagantly outside. Please write again. I miss your loving letters. One lives so badly, coming into the present unfinished, unsightly. I see you smile. Only this then, for Sunday. So you can see that there's some things you can do in that poem that you just couldn't do. So it's, I really like that line. My darling, he put it better, so much better than I can writing you this letter. I mean, that's you just can't say that now in a poem. But if it's written in 1907, you can. And you can say, um, I miss your loving letters. Please write again. Um, but we do feel like that. Um, such a shame. And you're always trying to find a way in poetry to say things that you want to say, but certain things you can't say. But when you create a voice, you can say, please write again, I love your, I miss your loving letters, one lives so badly. Actually, that's half a quote, one lives so badly, coming into the present unfinished, but then I changed it to unsightly. Um, and that last but only this then for Sunday is a slightly rewritten quote. One of the letters does finish, only this, dot, 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 for Sunday, dot, dot, dot. They're lovely letters, to, they're all to his wife. And there's this lovely issue about him talking to his wife, Suzanne painting his wife. There are 20, at least 24 portraits of Suzanne's wife. Almost nothing is known about her. She, um, you know, there's two letters that survive from her. Um, 
where in the letter she comes across not as the person that she's gone down in in history. The first Cezanne critic didn't like her, said she was a coarse and superficial person. Um, and that created a sort of ongoing kind of prejudice against her, really. But, you know, she sat for 24 portraits, which is hundreds and hundreds of hours of sitting. Yeah. And so there's something poignant about, you see her so much, but you don't know anything about her, you know. Um, so she sort of haunts the collection of Suzanne's wife. So I'm going to read backwards. I'm going to read a few from Jan, and then I'll finish with even sadder poems. I mean, sadness is definitely the keynote here. <laughs> I don't write. I'm quite funny in life, but um, when I come to writing poetry, I get sadder. I read you. I thought I'd read this biographical one. It's called Your Most Unlikely Son. And I, cho- I thought I'd choose it because it's, start- it's a poem beginning with a line by Michael Longley, who's a wonderful poet. Um, do read him if you haven't read him. Um, he's still writing, uh, still writing wonderful uh, poems. Um, and he quite often starts with a, a poem with a line that says, poem beginning with a line by somebody. So I was quite struck by doing the same thing, if you see the poem beginning with a line. Um, this is a little sequ- kind of little sequence about my childhood. Um, my father. Anyway, see what we think. Um, your most unlikely son. Poem beginning with a line by Michael Longley. That instant I, your most unlikely son, the youngest boy you'd never understand. The very instant I was born, you, caught by the camera's lens, were standing on the wing of a Bristol bowfighter, guiding the engine down and thinking, in my reverie, what to do once the war was over, then fixing on the answer, wife and children. You gave your life to coaches and swore figure, cricket at the weekend with Uncle Phil, black wrecks and, a, and the publican's shy daughter. I see you stepping in the car, my mother stooping, pulling close her dress, a shower of confetti, the god almighty racket of petrol tins and buckets when the rover pulled away. Soon you had three sons climbing trees and reading war comics, but when it came to my turn, Grandma said she had drowned another boy. Four years later, you finally had a girl. If no business came knocking at your door, you'd dig the garden, a robin hopping in your clean-cut trench. Meanwhile, I grew more perplexing still. A boy of tears, I must have seemed, breaking those chickens' eggs that day, showing off, in my tempestuous way, a sensitive boy who'd never run or make a wicket-keeper. But as you lay dying in your hospital bed, trying to mend the broken marriages, finding a nurse for each one of my brothers. You called me lovely in the eyes of Eve, your most unlikely son, your sad conundrum. So that was my father's <laughs> blessing. I don't know if you think he did find me a bit, <laughs> you know, to know what to do with me. I think he meant that I was handsome, which is difficult to believe now, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I tried to find out that what where I think I, I wonder whether you got it from, from Milton, um, "Lovely in the Eyes of Eve," but I've never been able to find the source of that. And he said it to me as a quote, but I've never found the source of it. So if you ever find "Lovely in the Eyes of Eve," please let me know. 
I remember because he was trying to fix my all my all my brothers' their marriages had all broken down. So he was trying to fix each one up with a nurse, and he even he got one for me. <laughs> but he, he still hadn't quite come to terms with a certain issue around me, um, and with barking at the wrong tree. So then the other little childhood poem I thought I'd read is this um, poem about um, I haven't read very often, but uh, I was brought up in this large family. My mother. A tiny little woman used to drive a coach. Um, she had five children. We had two, at least two Alsatian dogs, a guinea pig, sometimes a selection of them, a rabbit in the kitchen, a, a huge fat tabby cat who was renowned for being lazy after he had the operation. Um, you know, she had this incredibly full life. So I ended up being slightly brought up by a woman who lived across the road called Jane. She sort of she originally started life as my grandmother's maid, I think, or something weird, like or companion when she was old. And she kind of looked after me. So this is my poem to her. It's called The Fire Ritual. Um, I won't explain why it is a kind of fire ritual. The poem is a kind of fire ritual. The Fire Ritual. Take this folded manuscript and write the names of those who loved you from the start but mention Jane and how she walked beyond the runner beans and lettuce to where she'd pick the damsons while your grandma supervised. Or after grandma died and Jane stayed on in that drafty house across the high street with the Alsatian she fed too many biscuits, how she'd love to draw the parting in your hair, dead straight with the sharp edge of a comb. Write about the cushion she'd have to use to see above the steering wheel and how she left that day to pick up Mrs Lewis as usual from the butchers where she worked, a taxi job along the Stratford Road. You knew when you took the worried phone call, someone asking where the taxi was, a policeman in the yard, that nothing bad could happen if you'd already thought it could. The news he brought was never talked about. So write about her here how cold her hands were when she woke you up for school, then burn it with the naming of her dog, the rug she'd thrash, peas she'd sit and shell, her stocking seams, the soldier she was sweet on in the war. Yeah, what, what struck me about that is that nothing bad could happen if you'd already thought it could. I remember really feeling that, because I remember, I remember the policeman coming up the yard and thinking, oh no, perhaps something's happened on this taxi job. But I thought, I remember thinking, oh no, it won't have happened because I just had that thought. So nothing bad. You, you sort of have those spells and if, if I thought it could happen, oh no, it's, it's bound not to happen because it never happens if you thought of it. Yeah. Uh, let's see if I, I, was, I would like to find something jollier, but you're hard pushed in this collection. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so whilst we're on, really, we'll do a few more. Um, so uh, I've got a good, a good friend of mine, um, so what, in the Cromwell, there's a series of um, keep my time. Uh, there's a series of uh, elegies to Stephen, and then in the in Yarn, there's a series of elegies to my friend Mahananda, who um, you'll remember. Uh, you know, I, I ordained him, and we were friends for many years. Um, he died very, very suddenly, and I ended up writing a sort of a sequence of um, poems about him. He, I originally tried to write a sequence of poems in his voice using his diaries. He'd went on this sort of great big long round the world kind of cruise thing and I tried to use his diaries and write this sequence of poems which were nine pages long which 
was dropped out of the collection at the very last minute. And this weren't good enough. And I, when I wrote them, I thought I need a little something to bring you back into my voice after his voice. So, you know, I thought it would be his voice. And then I needed to say something. So I ended up with this tiny little thing here, which was to bring that, those poems back into the collection. And that's all I've got left. <laughs> those poems will never be published. So, anyway. So it's a tiny little thing, but I quite like it. These are much, the, the little lyric things are much the most difficult thing to do, to write. The complex, difficult poems are fairly easy. Well, not easy, but they're much easier. Little lyric rhyming things nearly kill you. <laughs> Five years on. Five years on, in blossom time, your voice is coming back. When all I thought you'd left behind were things, a broken watch trap, I find you talk to me in rhyme five years on in blossom time. But five years on is five years dead, so this can't be your voice, saying things you might have said, making a wiser choice from twists and turnings up ahead, five years on and five years dead. It's a very sort of simple form, it's a ballad form that just with a repeating line, five years on in blossom time. Your voice is coming back, and all I thought you'd left behind were things, a broken watch trap, and find you talk to me in rhyme, five years on, in blossom time. But five years on is five years dead, so this can't be your voice, saying things you might have said, making a wiser choice from twists and turns up ahead, five years on, and five years dead. Yeah, it's a very simple kind of form, but... Um, you see how it's much, it sort of sits and lives in the air. And then um, his, um, his life is, was, you know, is very difficult, and partly because of his mother's history. So his mother um, uh, was in Auschwitz, you know, survived Auschwitz. Um, you know, one of the most unspeakable things in human history, so dreadful that you can hardly begin to imagine it. Um, and, you know, so as soon as you start to write about him, I found myself having to write about her. And not long after he died, um, I mean, he had quite a difficult life. It was not, not long, partly, you know, you can imagine if you, you know, you've got your mother like that, any suffering you have, she can always trump it. <laughs> you know, like anything that happened to him, he, she was like, excuse me. Um, and it just used to drive me into a, into a frenzy, you know, at times. Um, but the, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the weight of history has passed on into the present. History isn't finished. It always gets passed on into, into the present. And I had this dream that he, he appeared to me in a dream. Literally, I was dreaming about something else. And he appeared, and he looked like he'd been on a very intensive retreat. And he gave me a great big hug. I could feel the bristle of his beard against my cheek. And um, he tried to tell me everything that happened since he died. And it all came out in one moment. It's great. I couldn't, couldn't explore it. Everything he was trying to say just came out in one big moment. So... For ages after that, I've been trying to write what he might have said or write the story that I heard in one moment. And I tried various ways, and then I eventually ended up with this poem. Um, this is called Zosia, and that's it, which is his mother's name, Zosia. And this took forever, and you need to get me out of this poem. <laughs> uh, sometimes you just think, please let me out. <laughs> I can't get out of it, you can't finish it. It takes forever. Zosia. You had to find your way without breathing, and you did. 
You walked, surprised how easy now it was to leave the world behind. But then the usual torments came. You'd find your mother again, stepping off the boat, a handbag with its handle worn or broken, no shoes, no coat, no language she could speak. And that was where it started. London and peace. Peace after war, but not, you said, for her. You had to listen to each recounted horror, the agreed-on vase of flowers left in a window, a sign that it was safe and no Gestapo searched the house. But how this time the plan went wrong, and fear too big to understand, ended every life. You stepped inside my dream to tell me with a kind of pride, your words a muddled rush, how death had come, how foolish all your fears had been, and wrong a song you stumbled through on your accordion, how everything made sense, the fumbled facts, your father's Bible, the burning books and maps, the camps, even the European stain found its settled place. There was no pain in your voice, nothing like a cry or moan. You were still the social man I'd known, warm and garrulous in company. You told me all of this and then embraced me. Today I had to cycle to the street by Primrose Hill where one damp night McNeese lay listening to the cutting down of trees, clearing the hill's crest for light artillery, the view prepared, searchlights probing heaven for the bacilli of war. But that was then. Your then still seems to me a now. Your plan when you'd got back from China and Xi'an, where you'd seen the terracotta soldiers facing east to guard the old Qin Emperor, was to concentrate on the inward journey, but not as far as this. I have your house key, so I lock my bike and open up your flat. The camel rug, the piles of books and knick-knacks, your shadow puppet, a dozen Chinese lamps, the garden overpainted with exuberance. <clears throat> I walk from room to room, opening doors, babbling about tiling and parquet floors. The estate agent suggests a change of decor as April flickers sunlight on your desk, the final envelope, the scrawled address you started, then put aside in your distress. She asks about the bathroom and the loo, a better boiler, which carpets to renew, which curtains, She's professional and nice. We talk about the market and the asking price. Hmm. I could say a lot more about that, but they're not. Um, so I'll read two little spiritual poems and I'll just finish with a, uh, a little bit of a sequence from the Cromwell. So this is one I edited on the plane. <laughs> it was two verses of five lines. And I crossed out the first verse uh, and changed the title on the plane. <laughs> it's, it's just not good enough. Um, so if it ever gets published again, it'll just be five, uh, six lines. So, winter prayer. This stubborn feeling of despair, snow sleet in the freezing air that blows across a mountain lake and makes its darkness concentrate in such a sickness 
of self-pity, may the Buddhas bear with me. That's all it is now. It was a bit longer. <laughs> First words of difficult. I'll read it again. Winter prayer. This stubborn feeling of despair, snow sleet in the freezing air that blows across a mountain lake and makes its darkness concentrate in such a sickness of self-pity, may the Buddhas bear with me. And then I'll just read this little rhyming prayer that I wrote called Two Birds for Kabir. It's in, it's in Tetrameter, dumpty 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 dum. Uh, all the lines do that. And it's in a rhyming scheme, which is A, B, A, B. So you couldn't be more traditional. Um, they are by far the hardest to write. Um, really, to write in any way that works. It's much, much harder. And nobody's ever liked this poem apart from me. <laughs> but I foisted upon audiences in the hope that somebody one day will write it. Called Two Birds for Kabir. Kabir is an ancient um, Hindu uh, poet and, uh, and mystic. Two Birds for Kabir. A tree was growing in the sky on which two birds were darkly perched. The air was blonde. The earth was grey. The tree was silver, like a birch. The tree was like a winter tree. No leaves were gathered around the base, nor did it bow in sympathy to make a shrine or sheltered place. One bird was on a higher bough. She watched the other eat the fruit that plump within a holy now grew as an everlasting truth. And as she ate, the juice that dripped was falling into empty space in shining Devanagari script, like hot tears on a cheddar's face or beads from a broken rosary. And so they perched forever there, two birds upon a rootless tree, one eating, one in silent prayer. You can't... You see, they're just trouble with writing little lyrics like that. People go, hmm, that's nice. <laughs> 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 they, they really kill you, and then you read them and go, oh, yeah, quite like that one. <laughs> you can't. Some of the, like, there's one I've wrote that took me forever to write, and uh, people go, hmm, yeah, quite like that one. <laughs> um, so what I thought, I'd just finish with these, um, little, uh, I thought I'd read a bit of a sequence from this Stephen sequence. It's too long to read them completely in any way. I would drop some of them now, I think. Um, this is this uh, poem about this, whatever it was, this relationship, which is too grand a term with this boy when I was eight. Started when I was about eight. Yeah. So what I'll do instead, I won't read the titles, I'll just, I think there's about four of them or something, and I'll just read one, then pause for a moment, then read another, and just finish like that. They're too sad to talk about. I mean, sadness, as you can see. I got one funny poem, but I didn't read it tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I think my new collection, I might have even two funny poems. That's my big exaggeration, but I mean, they're not like, hi! <laughs> they're like slightly, okay, slightly amusing rather than, you know, like throw your head back in guffaw. Right? Um, it's actually quite difficult to write good funny poems. Richard Wilbur has wonderful ones, but people rather look down on funny poems as if being funny isn't serious, but it's hugely serious. If you haven't got a sense of humour, Go and get one. <laughs> um, you really need it. Okay, that was a funny bit. Um, so let's I'll read these. <laughs> so 
standing on a bridge in the beginning of snow, taking the measure of it, the water's reach, trees reflected, the careening white of goals. I was trying to hold, trying to keep it all, the river's elbowing, the valley's palm. He was standing on a bridge and couldn't speak, water racing over pebbles and half bricks, a sound like mutilation, like an audience constantly rising to its feet. I was looking to where the silted leaves might show a trout or stickleback, a sluggish weight of water. He was waiting by the dam beside the brook. The cutting at the end of Crockett's Lane had a meadow on either side, a brow fringed with blackthorn and a few sheep grazing in sodden fields below. It carried steam trains up to Lapworth before the beaching act cut the branch lines down. Now it was a brambled V overrun with elderflowers and bodleia. We'd go there blackberrying, filling colanders and plastic tubs. The cutting was a good walk from the house, almost far enough to tire the dogs. I remember children on the embankment carrying Union Jacks up against the sky like little soldiers. They came from all the local schools because we heard the Queen would visit Henley in the Royal Train. But that can't be right. That line came up before I was even born and only Dad remembered steam trains huffing up and down it. I took Stephen there one summer. We kicked up dandelions and it was hot. We got those sticky burrs stuck in our shorts and socks. We were looking for somewhere we'd be safe and out of sight, a cleft beside a pond, and as we walked, two pigeons clattered out. We waded nettles that reached up to our chest. I managed to lift his shirt and touch his side, but he was scared, and so was I, and anyway, the train didn't stop. We just stood there on the platform while she thundered past. The mop came once a year and blocked the high street. The route past Station Road became a web of cables, spools and drums, with wires snaking across the road or slung from stall to stall. Gypsies in high-sided lorries with mongrels on their laps and boys with sullen eyes spent most of the day erecting the ghost train and the coconut shy. Goldfish hung in plastic bags between the flashing lights. They swell up, then go back to normal size. By evening, ropes of coloured lights hung between the lines. Sylvester filled the air, along with candy floss and diesel fumes. Cars flung you back and forth, and, and waltzers span you round while you held the bar and screamed. A man would walk the rising, falling floor like he was striding across the sea, although he nearly always chose the girls. Yellow plastic ducks swam together in a revolving circle backed by mirror glass. Each one had a wire hoop under its bill. So if you managed to hook one out, a gypsy would read the number felt tipped on the base, then pass across a pair of Spanish dancers or a plaster of Paris fish, flat and white and chalky from behind. I never played the one-armed bandits, but I liked the fruit, spinning lemons, strawberries and pears, 
to handle Paul, the regurgitated money. Stephen was standing with a group of friends just inside the tent. I kept my eyes averted, although something must have ached. He turned away, but didn't join the taunts. That must have been the year I said I'd take my nana to the mop. But when Penny came, or Pauline, I forgot, and she sat all evening waiting in the house. I think I see him, standing by the dodgem steps, hands inside his pockets, his face flashing amber, red and green. Girls were getting off, feeling wobbly and having to sit down, while a man would run across and help each time too many cars collided. The mop had gone by morning. The streets were quiet again and dull, that even swept and cleared away the litter. It was around the start of autumn. The air had that sudden softness. The leaves were turning. He'd been waiting to do something with his life when someone screamed as a woman we both knew turned right and knocked him off his bike. I don't remember seeing you in the snow by the playing field below the silver birches. I don't remember autumn or when we met, whether or not your skin was warm, what kind of clothes you wore, what you thought about the first Apollo landing. There were summers, of course, eight of them, and spring, the hedges coming back and flowering. But I don't remember the name you called me on the bus, the one you chased and hit me for while I stood on the butler's lawn, or what you looked like that evening at the mop. I remember you climbing up the kitchen stairs, naked, on your hands and knees, and me following. My father kept the bailed up newspapers inside the old green lorry. They mouldered in the summer heat. The page three girl, Snoopy at the back of the Daily Mail, UFOs and the mask of Tutankhamun. He kept them for the scouts along with gold and silver bottle tops. The lorry was near the hedge where I lost my mother's bread knife. My brothers jumped off the lorry roof onto bales of hay, Robert going first. But when it came to my turn, I hit my jaw against my knee and ran down the garden crying. Next door's garden was overgrown with weeds. When the neighbour died, my father said, he left instructions which compost heap his body should be left on. We went there once. Raspberries and red currants were tangled up in briars and there were runner beans choked with nettles still growing on their sticks. Stephen managed to force the back door open. We climbed the narrow buckle stairs that led to a box room lined with newspapers left over from where the underlay had been. A single window overlooked the ruined garden. It felt like everyone could see, so he climbed up through the attic hatch until his legs disappeared in the dark. That must have been a year before he was killed at the intersection between Beaudesert Lane and the High Street, his body lying under a blanket in the road the ambulance stopping the traffic, and me walking to school the morning of my art exam.
I want to imagine you into this room this morning. I want to see you listen to the sound. Can you hear it? Of snow thawing, falling, sliding down the roof tiles there and there again, like billiard balls rolling across the bays or blinds drawn down, weight on white weight, slowly, heavily to the ground. In my story, you walked to school that day. Left the moped, left the moped in the garage with your gauntlets on the seat, caught up with me, suggested we should meet back at your house, your brother still at work. I tell myself we carry on from there, off and on until I move away. Now you're 25 and have learnt the art of smiling. We talk about that time you waited in the bath next to your parents' kitchen after school. But the story won't make sense. The facts you left, too small to be given consequence. I can't put explanations in your mouth. You just stand there in the kitchen doorway, pencil slim and pale and carrying a helmet.